Well, I love this story. Um, it's one of my favorites for Christmas. But I was thinking about it. Why do we give gifts to each other at Christmas? Is it just a nice thing to do? I'm sure when we give gifts, we want to recognize God's gift of Jesus to us. <clears throat> but how does my giving my children new pajamas at Christmas really translate into that? Not, by the way, boys, that's not a clue. Don't worry. Not giving away the Christmas presents. But today's story is actually one of those reasons why we do give gifts at Christmas. In England, UK, it's not that big a deal, the, the whole wise men thing. But in other countries, it's kind of one of the major parts of the Christmas story. In fact, in Spain, where we lived, on January the 6th, they would have a day celebrating King's Day, the day when these three wise men appeared. Um, the 5th, they would have a procession. If you're in your local village, the three wise men would come along throwing out sweets. And they would you know, be a big celebration, you'd have the day off. But the downside for children is you'd have to wait till January 6th for presents. You wouldn't get them on December the 25th, so I doubt it would catch on here. But that's really one of the reasons why we give gifts, because we're remembering these wise men bringing gifts to Jesus. And so it helps us think about that. And as we dig into this wonderful event, I think we see something at the very heart of our faith, that worship is our response to God's gift of Jesus. And that out of that worship flow gifts back to God and to one another. So our gifts are an extension of that worship. And we're just going to go through this story and see different aspects. We'll look and see how the wise men are guided by the light. That'll be verses 1 to 6. Then we'll look at how Herod rejects the light, verses 7 and 8. And then back to the wise men, how they worship the light, verses 9 to 12. So let's jump into this first part. Now, most Christmas nativities, you know, if you go to your primary school or wherever, the wise men, the shepherds and Jesus, Mary and Joseph and the animals are all bunged in the stable together as sort of a nice, cozy kind of scene. But verse 1, as we've had read to us, tells us straight away it didn't happen like that. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, these three wise men show up. And it was probably quite a long time afterwards. When you look at Herod's reaction later on, we didn't read this part, but in the, in the latter half of the chapter, he ends up killing all the baby boys in Bethlehem to try and get rid of Jesus. And he says all those up to two years old. So this could have been quite a while after Jesus was born. However, whenever it was, these wise men don't go straight to Bethlehem they end up in Jerusalem. And we don't know that much about them, to be honest, although church tradition ends up giving them names, Balthazar, Melchior, and Gaspar, and even tells us where they came from. So supposedly one was a king somewhere in India, another one in Persia or Ethiopia, depending who you look at, and one in Arabia. But actually, we don't know any of that stuff. We don't even know there were three of them. But it could be that way because they bring, if they each bring a gift and there are three gifts, that would make sense. So I'm just going for this morning with three wise men. What we do know for sure is they were from the east somewhere, probably Babylon, Persia. They would have been educated in the wisdom of the day, very learned in studying the stars. That was their kind of thing. And often they're just called the Magi. That's how it is in some of our Bibles. And we shouldn't think with, by that that they're kind of modern-day astrologers or horoscope writers. We're not sort of mystic meg here. These are people who are studied, learned in many different things. These would be the kind of people the kings called on when they wanted to interpret dreams. We get things like that in Daniel. And they knew how to read what was happening, at least in the way they saw it, in the stars. So they had wisdom, learning, education. Perhaps they were even royalty as well, which is why we do sing things like We Three Kings of Orientar. 
But as I said, I'm just going to call them the three wise men or the Magi, however you say that word. And they arrive in Jerusalem. And as they arrive there, they have a question. Verse 2, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? What led them to asking that question? Well, they tell us, as the verse goes on, we've seen his star rising. We saw his star when it rose. They studied the stars. They saw something they had never seen before. So unique, so significant, that it put them on this journey, on a long, long journey, two to 3,000 kilometers, depending where they, exactly they came from, a journey of several months, probably a dangerous journey. What exactly did they see? We don't know. Probably not a star as we know it today. They would just call generally anything happening in the heavens would be stars. Could be a comet, could be some kind of stellar explosion. There's all sorts of explanations you can see online. Was it planets lining up? However it worked, in their understanding, they saw something in the heavens that told them, as they were in the east, we need to head west. West to Israel, to Jerusalem. That's where this thing, whatever it is, is happening. And so as they see this star rising, they set off. And for, I'm sure, for, and when they come to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the rulers, as they study the scriptures, would also be thinking not just of what we'll get to in a moment, but of prophetic fulfillment that goes even further back. As Israel are leaving the promised land, you remember the story of Balaam, the famous Balaam with his talking donkey. They come out and the king of Moab hires Balaam to go and curse the Israelites. And he says, I want you to curse them. But Balaam tells him, I can only do what God tells me to do. And as he sees Israel, instead of cursing them, he blesses them. And so he, this happens three times. And in one of those blessings, Balaam says this, a star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall arise out of Israel. And he sees, I see this a long way off. Isn't it amazing that God in his sovereignty has planned this so long ago, even before the prophets that we know well, that there would be a star coming out of Jacob, a scepter arising out of Israel that will rule. And then God moves these three men, these three wise men to make that long, arduous journey because he wants to mark this occasion, the birth of Jesus, with this special visit. But I think also in his grace, he wants these three men to experience meeting Jesus, the Son of God. And he speaks to them in a language they understand. He speaks to them through the stars, what they study. You know, I think that's probably theologically dodgy, but God did it. He spoke to them in their language. And they come. They don't just come to say hello or to give him an official welcome to the world. The end of verse 2 tells us they've come to worship him. This is someone special, somebody different. Now, as the story goes, they arrive in Jerusalem. So at some point, the star is obviously no longer visible. They end up in Jerusalem, and they don't know what to do, so they start asking questions. This question, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? And that question makes it all the way up to Herod, who happens to be the current king of the Jews, appointed by Rome, not of Jewish descent, so no wonder in verse 3 we read that he was disturbed. Here is a potential rival, someone of true Jewish descent, someone that threatened his position, someone born to be king of the Jews. And no wonder that all Jerusalem was disturbed too. He was perhaps the Messiah, prophesied long ago. Because for them, the king of the Jews, the Messiah, was one figure. And so when Herod calls the chief priests and teachers of the law, in verse 4, he says, where is 
the Messiah to be born. And so the chief priests, teachers of the law, gather round. They open their Old Testament scriptures, and they tell Herod and the wise men the answer. Verse 5, this Messiah will be born in Bethlehem in Judea. I've always thought, well, that's a bit obvious because that's where David was born. But remember that every subsequent king after, after David, every king of the Jews from that point on had been born in Jerusalem. That was now the royal city. That was where you should be born if you were going to be king. And so this is unexpected in that sense, that he'll be born in Bethlehem. But they get that as they turn to scripture. They open up the prophet Micah, someone who prophesied long after David, but long before Jesus, about the same time as Isaiah, 700 years or so before Christ. And there, as they quote Micah 5.2, they see that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. If you flip quickly to Micah chapter 5, you'll see that they quote only a little part of that section, which is really full of messianic significance. And I'm sure Matthew only includes a little bit because it would have been known as hearers. <clears throat> and it's such an amazing prophecy, full of significance. Look at some of the phrases that are not quoted. Well, verse 2 again, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. And then it says this, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times or everlasting. Does that put you in mind of anyone? Verse 3, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth. Pretty cryptic. Until we remember, the wise men come asking, where is the one born king of the Jews? We remember what we saw last week. For to us, a child is born. Isaiah 9, 6, Isaiah 7, 14, the virgin will be with child and give birth. You will call him Emmanuel, God with us. And the picture carries on, verse 4, this ruler will shepherd in the strength of the Lord. His greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Look at verse 5. This, I think, is the crowning little thought here. He will be their peace. It's exactly what we saw last week. Jesus, Prince of Peace. So again, isn't it amazing how God has planned all this, how he showed it to the prophets 700 years before Christ. And now he brings these three wise men seeking, asking, where is this child born to be king of the Jews? They must have been gobsmacked, I think, as they heard all this unfolded to them, as they poured over these ancient texts and saw exactly what God had planned. And I imagine, no doubt, they couldn't wait to head off to Bethlehem because it was just down the road, five miles away. But before they get to do that, Herod comes up with a plan, and this is where we see how he rejects the light. Verses 7 and 8, Herod shows his true colors. He calls the wise men secretly pretends to be a genuine inquirer, works out exactly when the star appeared, which is, of course, how he works out that he needs to kill all the boys under two years old in Bethlehem. I want to come and worship him. It didn't matter to him if this newborn king had been prophesied and was God's anointed one. He would do all he could to foil God's plan. He is the sad picture of human sin and rebellion. Rather than submit to God and his plan, rather than come to him, kill him. He's someone who holds on to power at all costs. He will lie and murder to do that. 
And in fact, that was quite common with Herod. He was a bit of a nasty character. He put to death some of his own family, his own sons, his wife, others of his family, all because he wanted to hold on to power. Contrast that with Jesus, the true king of the Jews, who gave up power and position and glory, limited himself in time and space to come and be born as a baby to rescue a fallen humanity. What a great challenge for us at Christmas because we live in a world that clings on to privilege, clings on to position, clings on to power. And instead we left this example by Jesus as we saw last week in Philippians 2, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Rather he made himself nothing, nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, a baby even we could say, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's the example Jesus lives us, the one we should follow, Paul tells the, the Philippians. We should be embracing God's light, being guided by it, not rejecting it as Herod did. So back to the wise men. They listen to Herod, hear what he says, and then they set off. But think about it. All they've got now is a general address, Bethlehem. But no idea who this child is that was born many months ago. How are they going to find him? And in God's amazing sovereignty, again, his power... Verse 9, we read, the star they had seen rising went ahead of them. It appeared, I, I like other versions tend to be a bit more literal. It says, behold the star, behold the star. They've been traveling for many months, many miles, and the star appears again just when they need it. Somehow, God does this, and the star, we read, literally guides them to the very house Jesus is in, stops over it, it says. Again, how God does that, what's meant by star, maybe one day we'll find out. But God leads them through this guiding light, this star to the right place. And we read in verse 10, that verse we saw earlier, that they were overjoyed. That translation doesn't quite do it justice. If you want more literally, they rejoiced with great joy exceedingly. Overwhelmed with joy, I think is better. J.B. Phillips says they experienced indescribable joy. They know that God has led them to the fulfillment of this journey of months. I think perhaps even of their life journey, because these three men, I believe, are seeking God himself. I think that's why it's these three out of all the myriads of wise men there were in those days who make it to this groundbreaking once for all, never to be repeated event. They were seekers, genuine seekers of the divine. They find him. <laughs> And so they enter the house, bringing their presents for this child born to be king, verse 11. And it's very easy for us to jump straight to the gifts. Certainly what my boys want to do on Christmas morning, and I don't blame them. But notice what comes before the giving of the gifts. Verse 11, they bowed down and worshipped him. And again, I'm going to give you slightly more literally. They fell down and prostrated before him, or at least fell to their knees and worshipped. That's the real picture. This is not kind of a nice Buckingham Palace sort of genteel bow. This is flat on your face before the king, on your knees at least. See how the language is piling up to show the full weight of this awesome occasion. This exceeding, overwhelming, indescribable joy, falling to their knees, prostrating, worshipping. Doesn't it show us who Jesus is 
and, and what he should provoke in us. Overwhelming joy, flat on your face worship. I mean, sometimes we can barely get a hand up, but these guys were right on their faces before this baby. Here is God made man. Is, is that our reaction to Jesus? Perhaps this Christmas is an opportunity to be reminded again of just how awesome Jesus is and of the mind-blowing nature of the incarnation. These three pagan magi, star watchers, grasp it in a way that we often fail to. So do we worship in our response to God's gift? Have we been seeking him as they did? Maybe this Christmas, will we make space to do that? In a really, it's taking the same kind of effort they did to say, yeah, I want to make space for Jesus this Christmas because he's very often the one who's crowded out by all the stress, all the festivities and everything we have to do. And so then from this worship lying before the king comes this gift giving. They open their treasures and present him with gifts. Here again is another glance back at the Old Testament. Psalm 72, a psalm about Solomon, David's son, pointing forward to the greater son of David. Verse 10, 11, talk about kings from distant lands bringing tribute to, God, to Jesus, of presenting him with gifts, all kings bowing down before him. These three magi, these royalty, if they were, are kind of a picture, a foretaste of how that will happen, presenting gifts bowing down to worship the one, as the psalm goes on to say, that all nations will be blessed through him and they will call him blessed. Maybe it reminds us of the Queen of Sheba coming to visit Solomon, bringing gold and spices. And I think it's interesting that Jesus, when he's debating with the religious leaders, rebukes them. He says, one greater than Solomon is here. But you, my own people, fail to recognize it, he's kind of saying. And I think it just hits home again. The reality that these three foreigners, whom we would probably consider a bit dodgy with their astrology, their dream interpretation, all that kind of stuff that they were into, they come to worship. They recognize Jesus, the Son of God, long before even the first disciple. And so they bring their gifts. There's a little phrase there I've never really noticed before. It says they open their treasures. I don't know if they had a little treasure chest on the side of the camel or what. But I get the picture, and maybe this is just me, but I get the picture, they're kind of rummaging through. What is good enough for this king I've come to worship? What is good enough for Jesus? Nope, the carved camel souvenir, that won't do it. Dates, nope. And they pull out the most valuable things they could find, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We know the value of gold, it's still valuable today in the same way. Frankincense and myrrh, no idea. But back then, they were certainly very expensive. They would have been only what the richest of the rich had. All three gifts worthy of a king. These men pull out what is most valuable to this newborn king. And through church kind of interpretation, there may be significance to the gifts themselves. One of the church fathers suggests that gold signifies royalty, frankincense, divinity, and myrrh burial. Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, uses myrrh on the body of Jesus when he buries him. So perhaps there's that kind of significance to those gifts. But I wonder too, 
given this whole story, looks back at the Old Testament so many times. Perhaps there's some significance too that gold, frankincense, and myrrh appear together in only a couple of other places in the Bible. One is in the Song of Songs, which is all about perfumes and gold earrings and things like that, so not relevant. But Exodus 30, gold covers the altar. Myrrh is used as part of that sacred anointing oil for priests to make them holy. Frankincense is part of the sacred incense used in the Holy of Holies that they would burn. I wonder if this is picturing Jesus made holy as our great high priest, as we saw in Hebrews. I wonder if it's picturing Jesus, the one who opens up the way into the holy presence of God. I wonder if it's picturing Jesus, the one who sacrificed on a heavenly altar, represented by that earthly altar of gold. However we understand these gifts, whether it's just really expensive stuff, appropriate for a king, it shows us that our gifts should flow out of that worship for God. And as these men, these magi, worship before Jesus, they could do no other than give him what was most valued from what they had. Again, a great challenge for us at Christmas. We get stressed about presents, or at least I do. I've got to get the right thing, especially for my wife, who's just, yeah, I won't go there. But how about for Jesus? What are our treasures? What can we look through and bring to him, give to him? We don't have gold. I was going to say a gold wedding ring, but it's not even gold anymore. I lost that one. It's silver now. Or frankincense. Myrrh, I certainly don't have those. But there are things I can give to Jesus. There is my love, my time, my gifts, my service that I can offer to him. What will we give to Jesus this Christmas, not just to each other? And so that brings us to the end of this wonderful Christmas kind of a Christmas story. They may not have even shown up at Christmas. We don't know. Almost. Verse 12, there is still the murderous, scheming King Herod to reckon with. And isn't it great? Although there's no more guiding light for these wise men, God speaks to them in a dream this time, language they would understand again, and warns them to go home by another way. I just want to stop on that for a moment, because I think this highlights again the mystery of the incarnation. They've come to worship Jesus, this small baby, because he is truly divine. He is worthy of worship. But at the same time, he is a small human baby, vulnerable, needing protection. He doesn't have a divine blast shield or some superpower where if you try and kill him, you get zacked like Harry Potter. He needs protection from a wicked, murderous king. And so God does this. First by warning the wise men, go home a different way. And then as the story unfolds, verses 13 onwards, we see he comes to Joseph in a dream and says, take Jesus, go. So Jesus, uh, Joseph gets Jesus and Mary and flees with them to Egypt until this particular Herod is dead. Isn't it mind-blowing, though? Jesus, the Son of God, becomes this helpless baby. Does that not just show how far Jesus was willing to go for us, to be made flesh, as we already saw in Philippians 2, to become helpless and vulnerable? If Joseph and Mary didn't pick him up, he couldn't move. That is the mystery of the incarnation. He became a refugee on the run from a murderous king 
so that we might find a home in heaven with God. So I hope as we think about this story as a wrap-up, this is not just a nice Christmas story, but something that challenges us deeply. It asks us, will we take time to seek Jesus? Yes, we do that coming to church. But how about in a deeper way, even this Christmas? Because as we do that, we do find Jesus is the one who brings indescribable joy. And will we worship him deeply? Flat on our faces kind of worship. And don't worry, I'm not expecting you to do that here in church this morning or probably ever. But maybe at least in our hearts, there's that sense of deep adoration. Maybe in your bedroom, there's a moment of flat on your face worship. Because Jesus is worthy of that. And will we not get wrapped up in buying the right presents for everyone else, but what will we offer him? What is the very best we can give him as we respond out of our worship to God's gift? Let's pray.